Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in the book of Acts, chapter 11. You have the insert there before you. It has the passage as well. We are coming through a section starting at chapter 9 now to chapter 11 that records what some have argued, and I tend to agree, may be the two most important conversions in the history of the church. That's a large statement, I realize, but think of who we're talking about. Uh, The first one won't be hard for you probably to agree with. That's Saul of Tarsus becomes a Christian. Um, He is used of God to be a great missionary, an apostle, a writer of 13 biblical books. Um, So certainly we can probably agree that he is one of the most pivotal conversions in history. The second doesn't necessarily strike you immediately, but I think as we've been walking through these chapters, 10 and 11 now, uh, you might tend to agree now, I hope, that Cornelius might be the next most important conversion. He represents the expansion of the gospel now to the nations. He represents the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant now in the person of Cornelius, this Gentile. He receives the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes to him. He's baptized. He's a member of the church now. Um, This is the fulfilled reality that God promised. It's not so much a change as it is a fulfillment. It is definitely a shift, especially for those who are Jewish Christians, who are predominantly the ones who made up the church at this point. Now, there were some who were not of Jewish descent who were Jewish proselytes. They became Jews and then trusted in Christ. There are some of those for sure. But the way you came to Christ still to this point, at least in their minds and in their tradition, was through Judaism. You had to become Jewish. That means the sign of the covenant, circumcision, some of the rites and the rituals, and then you believed in the Messiah, who is Jesus. So they were Christians, but they were carrying with them something, uh, something of baggage, of barrier. And this would be corrected through Cornelius and through this episode with Peter and Cornelius in particular. Derek Thomas rightly notes that wherever great advances have been made in gospel expansion, a measure of spiritual resistance always accompanies it. And that's what we have at the beginning of chapter 11. And we see how God directs Peter to handle this in the impact of this whole exchange between Peter and Cornelius, the work of God to bring Cornelius and his household to faith. It's monumental. It impacts all of us in some fashion, especially since the vast majority of us are Gentiles. Here now as I read God's word, this is Acts 11, verse 1 to verse 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descended, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey, and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. 
And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, please guide us in understanding and applying your word once again this morning. Give us understanding so that we might fully appreciate what we are studying here. Help us to see how the truths revealed in this chapter of Acts apply to our lives and our relationships today, how we look at the world and others. Lord, most of all, impress us afresh with your sovereignty in building your kingdom through your gospel. The barriers that we see and are sometimes intimidated by or captured by are actually no barriers at all for you and your gospel. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Some years ago now, um, I went to a farm construction and grounds management trade show in the St. Louis area when I was a student in seminary. I worked in the grounds crew and went with my boss several times to buy new equipment with him. There was a big equipment demonstration, bigger than we needed, but since it was a demonstration, we wanted to see what the stuff did. I'll never forget watching um, this tractor demonstration by New Holland, the company that makes uh, so many... uh, pieces of big equipment. And the basic assumption or the basic thing they taught or said was that this tractor is unstoppable. And so they would prove this by putting it into first gear, hardly doing anything more than first gear, and then let it roll over stuff. I mean, it started out with, you know, small appliances, uh, like microwaves and things like that. Then it got bigger, like refrigerators. Then it went to furniture, like couches and beds and stuff. And then finally it ended with a car, you know, just like a monster truck goes over it, only not revving the engine as much. It just grind, it just, the wheels just kind of grinded forward over the, over the car. I mean, it was awesome. I mean, anything crushing like that is pretty cool. So we're watching these, these things go, this thing go over it with relative ease. And that was the whole advertising point. This thing is unstoppable. It can't, nothing you could throw in its way is going to stop it, no matter how big or small it is. And all these items you think would stop it would not stop it. As I read the story of the Bible and the story of the gospel unfolding, you get the sense that there's this unstoppable feature built in by God's power. As the gospel is preached, it, the kingdom of God just keeps growing. And the gospel, just those wheels turn and they can't stop. Barriers will come up, and like in the case of the tractor, when the first wheel, front wheel would hit the car, it would move a little, but then only long enough for it to pick up its wheels again and go over it. Uh, Similarly, there'll be these stops and stunts along the way, Uh, but overall, the gospel being preached won't stop. It can't be stopped. It's unstoppable that God's kingdom will grow in this light. 
Now, we could be in a place where we see it die down for a time, but it's growing somewhere else. And it's been working this way really since the apostles' time. It will always grind forward until that day in which Christ returns. And we have the beginnings of these wheels turning now with Cornelius receiving the gospel and clarity about how the gospel is meant to go to all people, to go to all nations, to give clarification to the wrong thinking that many of the early Christians had because of their Jewish traditions. Clarification now comes about how all must be saved through Christ and what happens when they become believers. This starts to unfold before our eyes in chapter 11 especially. The advance of the gospel, it is God's work. That's why it's unstoppable. And it's his work that breaks down the things that we would call barriers or that we experience as barriers. Things like our prejudice, the way we discriminate against people for a bunch of reasons, those things, as difficult as they are and as powerful as they are, they come down with the preaching of the gospel. And as people receive the gospel by God's grace, their hearts are changed, they look at people differently, and they respond to people differently. Now, before I go further, later in the sermon, I'll give you some specifics that are still pretty general. Um, The way the, the world is today, especially even in our country, there's so much defensiveness that comes up when people start talking about prejudices and discrimination. I would ask you to not think in terms of whatever's happening in the culture. Think in terms of being a Christian. This is God's word, and we have sin in our hearts that needs to be addressed, and God comes to us with his word, and every one of us has some particular way in which we discriminate or hold something against another person. It could be any number of things that we think or do. I'm not here to tell you what it is or make you feel guilty about your particular thing or put on everybody this one label of sin. But we all know that we have the propensity to be biased in our own ways. My appeal to us as a church is that we would individually and collectively ask God to convict us of anything we might hold against someone else that would prohibit us from sharing Christ with them. That they would not be able to hear the gospel from us because of some way in which we are viewing them or acting towards them. And just ask God to give us conviction so that we would act out of our identity in Christ rather than any other label we might put even on ourselves. With that as a preface, a pastoral preface, let's look at the passage now and see what happens as major barriers come down in this initial preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles and the reception thereof. We see a barrier come down against the spread of the gospel, run over as, as Jesus is preached. Let's notice the barrier in the first few verses, starting at verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Verse 1 is just a general statement of reality that after this episode with Cornelius, word traveled fast from Caesarea, got back to Jerusalem, where most of the apostles still were, the majority of the Christians were, that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Now you remember back in chapter 8, the Samaritans had received the word of God. They were half Jewish. That was shocking enough, so much so that Peter and John traveled to see it actually for themselves, how the Holy Spirit had come upon them. The way they knew that, it, that they had really received the Word of God is the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit that at that time was manifested in a certain way to prove it. So they saw the Samaritans had already received the gospel, now the Gentiles. Now this is a bigger deal. They could have seen the Samaritans as just Jews had lost their way and they're coming back. 
still through Judaism. They still would have been circumcised. There still would have been connections to old Judaism that they could see. But now we're talking Gentiles, a Roman centurion, the uncircumcised, those who are outside of the rites and the rituals of Judaism, not proselytes to Judaism yet, yet they're receiving Jesus and the Holy Spirit's come upon them. So they hear that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Now there's no statement about what they think about this, but verse 2 tells us of a particular reaction now that Peter receives when he shows up in Jerusalem. Verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, notice that Peter went to Jerusalem of his own accord. We don't have any indication that he was summoned there or commanded to answer for what he did. He was going back there. It's the basic headquarters for the church, at least until 70 A.D. It's where most Christians were congregated. They were Jewish Christians predominantly because of the temple. Some had transplanted from other parts of the world, but they had become Jewish to worship at the temple, and so there are no Gentile converts yet of note, not the way we see happening with Cornelius. Peter goes to Jerusalem, and it says the circumcision party criticized him. Now, this is not to be thought of as an actual party or sect, but rather it is a description given to those Jewish Christians who still thought that circumcision was necessary to enter now the church. Um, It was their belief that the full acceptance of Messiah could only be realized through Judaism. You still had to receive the sign of Judaism, and then you could believe on Christ. This was a difficult challenge for those early Jewish Christians to understand how the old way of doing and thinking related to the new way. It wasn't about what the Scripture taught. It was just the way traditions had built up. We understand them to be Christians, but they're struggling with this error in their thinking about the place of circumcision. So they came and said to Peter, despite what had happened, I can't believe, in essence, I can't believe you ate with this person who was uncircumcised and stayed in their house. Never mind that Cornelius and his household had come to faith in Christ. Never mind that Cornelius was so excited about hearing the word of God from Peter that he assembled everybody, who knows for how long, waiting for Peter to come, and then said, give it to us. What is the message you have for us? Never mind that he and his household professed faith in Christ and were baptized. Their response, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You know, Think about how we sometimes let our traditions and our customs and our ways of looking at things get in the way of something that's far more glorious. There are things we could be stiff about for no good reason. Or we put too much emphasis on and we lose sight of what God has done in an amazing way in somebody's life. Maybe they don't express it exactly the right way and we think, you know, you didn't say that exactly theologically accurately. God just did something in their life. Can we just hold up on that analysis for a little while? That's what you have here a little bit. I mean, the gospel has been received by Gentiles. A Roman centurion has shaken off polytheism, has shaken off even the bonds of Roman tyranny that would possibly cause him to lose his own life. He shakes all that off in favor of the Messiah. And all they could focus on is, you had dinner with this guy? Seriously, that's 
something for us to consider. We should always scrutinize, by the way, our traditions and our customs with Scripture. It's good to scrutinize our practices, our rituals, our observances, our routines, our habits, our ways. Now, don't get me wrong. Much of the things we do, they're within our liberty to choose to do them. But they should not get in the way of seeing how God's working or get in the way of someone understanding what it is that God says. So we have to go out of our way within our culture to explain things. And by the way, that's true of every church you'll go to. There's things that we do in a church setting that are different than Grace Church does or, or Blue Valley Baptist does or Hope Alive does. We have to, all of us as individual churches, explain why we do what we do, especially when there's not something expressly laid down by Scripture. I mean, the time we meet, the kind of building we may be in, what the pastor wears. Everyone does something related to that, but it should not become a distraction to the joy we have when we hear of God's work in whatever way he works. Cornelius, the centurion, and his household come to faith and they are baptized. A Pentecost happens with the Gentiles, and the response is, you ate with the uncircumcised, stayed in their house? Now, Peter could have dropped the holy apostolic hammer on them. He could have. And you know, Peter's not above doing that. We're talking about Peter here, right? He could have pressed his authority upon them and even scolded them for their narrow thinking in limited view of God's kingdom plans. Instead, starting in verse 4, we see what Peter did. This is important. Verse 4, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. So he carefully and logically lays out for them exactly how God has revealed his will and how God's will is for the Gentiles to receive the gospel and for all believers Jewish or otherwise, to receive Christ by faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit, and be baptized and counted as members of the church. He's going to explain how God revealed this, because God's revelation is is important to these Jewish Christians. They believe in God's word. Peter's going to tell them what God's word is. Rather than scold them or be impatient with them, he explains it to them. He talks to them about why this is so. It's interesting that Luke is the writer of Acts. Luke likes orderly accounts. He likes this logical flow explaining what God does. In the beginning of his gospel, he writes to his friend Theophilus, "Um, I am writing to put things in order so that you know what happened, the truth of the matter. And here Peter begins and explains explains it to them in order. Now, the bulk of the passage, starting at verse 5, shows the the power of God's word and his work to break down the barriers. The barriers of those who will now hear the story that Peter relays, but the barrier in Peter's heart, the barrier in Cornelius' heart, and the people involved, God breaks all that down with the gospel. Now, in analyzing these, this portion of verses, I'll break it down to you in four sections as he lays out the story. First, he recounts the divine vision that he had that we've now heard for three times. Now, you might say, well, we've heard it three times, we don't have to explain it again. Listen, if it's three times in two chapters, God really wants us to get what's said here. He wants us to know the meaning of this vision and have it applied. Three times. And it's mentioned a fourth time by Peter later. So the first few verses are about his vision. 
Then he recounts the command from the Holy Spirit that comes in light of the vision. Then he recounts the divine preparation that God did in the whole episode, how he was preparing everyone's heart to receive the gospel. Finally, he recounts the action that God took by sending the Holy Spirit to give Cornelius and his household faith in Christ. Let's walk through together. First, he recounts his vision. Notice when this vision is told to the, this, this new audience, he gives some more details that we didn't know from the first two telling. Verse 4, Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and a trance, in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey. So that's a more detail than before. And reptiles and birds of the air. We know there's a mixture of clean and unclean animals in Jewish thinking that he sees lowered on this sheet. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. So if you're a Jewish audience listening to this vision being recounted, you're thinking to yourself, oh man, look, that's terrible. That's all un- there's a mixture of unclean stuff. You can't eat that. And now the voice is telling you to, it can't be God's voice is what the audience is probably thinking. And of course, Peter gives the right Jewish answer when it happened, remember, and he says it here. But I said, verse 8, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Good answer, the people are thinking. Good Jewish answer, Peter, well done. But, verse 9, the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean do not call common. Okay, it wasn't a mistake what I heard. I heard it right. This happened to me, verse 10, three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. Three witnesses or three accounts of the story over and over together, matching, tells you it's the truth of the thing. Peter's claiming this is the truth of the thing, and they had no reason to disbelieve Peter. They love Peter. This audience was not anti-Peter. And so Peter's saying, this is what happened. This is exactly what was said to me. This was the vision. Clearly, this was the vision. So they have to believe this was the word of God that came to Peter. Then he recounts the command that comes from the vision. Verse 11, behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them. Here's the key, making no distinction. Now, the making no distinction comes from the vision. The vision mixed clean and unclean animals which is always associated with the people who eat those things. That's how they would have understood it. In fact, out in public, the main way you would know who's Jewish or not is based on what they ate. And he's saying, forget all that. Mix it all up. No distinction any longer. So this no distinction has to do with you don't play favorites with people any longer. You don't think of some as clean and unclean. Everybody should be thought of without distinction. And so the Spirit, the Spirit of God, told me, verse 12, to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers, now he's talking about the Jews that traveled with him from Joppa to Caesarea, also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. This is critical because this gives you seven witnesses to everything Peter's talking about that happens from this point forward. So there's credibility about the story. He's careful about it. It's accurate. The people can tell this is the act of God. It's just tough for them. Their hearts are their hearts are hard against, with some of these traditions and these, these mores and these customs and practices. And it's taking God's word in his 
revelation to work to change the way they think about what the gospel is going to do and who it should go to. Then, verse 13, he recounts how God orchestrated and prepared everyone in the whole story. It's all the work of God. That's what Peter is really emphasizing here by the way he's telling it. We know that's the truth of the story. This was God's doing. Verse 15, as I began to speak, or excuse me, and verse 13, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Now this is some detail we didn't have in the first tellings of the story. Uh, Peter didn't know why he was going to speak. He didn't know exactly why. So it is apparent that Cornelius had a good idea of the information that would be given to him. So this is all by God's orchestration, by what he does with Peter in the vision, by sending Cornelius a vision, by the messengers coming at the same time Peter was having the vision, Peter traveling up at the same time that everybody's gathered in the house. Everything is orchestrated by God so that the stage is set for the giving of the gospel. Finally, verse 15, he recounts what God then did through the Holy Spirit. Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Now we know what he spoke from the other accounts, the content of the gospel. He gives the gospel. He proclaims the message of Christ. And the Holy Spirit fell on them, and he says to this Jewish audience, just as on us at the beginning, talking about Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost. To make sure they understand, verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter brings the Bible, brings the words of Christ, the word of God, to compare with the experience he saw. That's always good instruction for us, brothers and sisters. When you see something happen, when we feel something or think we've experienced something or someone tells us they've experienced something, we shouldn't say that's wrong or just discount it, but we should carefully compare it with the Word of God. He was trying to understand what was happening now that the Gentiles were experiencing the Pentecost that the Jews had already experienced and the Samaritans had experienced. Now the Gentiles were experiencing it. And he recalled something that his Lord said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So what does he conclude as he says to the Jewish audience there? Verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Now notice what he says. He doesn't say he had become compelled that this was the act of God so he shouldn't stand in God's way, and he should be someone who helps the process of evangelism. That's not what he says. He observes it, recognizes those wheels moving. They cannot be stopped. And he says, who am I that I could stand in God's way? So he still has a struggle in his heart about this changeover in his mind. How does this look? But God's clearly at work. He's doing this thing. Who am I to stand? I could not stand in God's way, even if I wanted to, is essentially what he's saying. And he's trying to impress upon the audience. What you're seeing, brothers and sisters, he says, is something God has done and is doing, and he's instructing us as to how it will happen. And that's how it will be. And we cannot get in the way of this because God will do this. It's a way of compelling them to come along with what God is doing. 
this would be challenging for them based on all they had known and seen prior. Peter carefully compares what he witnesses with Scripture, just as we should do with all of our traditions, our customs, our views, constantly compare them with Scripture. And we will not stand or want to stand in God's way, even if we could, when we see what his word says. That's the work of the Spirit that gives us Scripture is the same Spirit that gives us understanding and the ability to apply it in our lives. And the evidence that the conversion of Cornelius and company was authentic was the filling of the Holy Spirit, in this case, through the gift of tongues. This was a way to unify that initial coming of the Spirit among the Jews, the Samaritans, and now the Gentiles. It had been complete. The Spirit was there. And now the the way going forward would be the, the gospel would be preached, the Holy Spirit would enliven hearts to believe, give them faith to lay hold of Christ, preached in the gospel. They would receive the mark of the covenant, Um, For the Gentiles, these are first generation in almost every case, so they receive baptism, and then their household, this is one of the reasons we think this is a continuation of the sign of the covenant before, just fulfilled in Christ. Cornelius' household received the sign. We see it in other places in the book of Acts to come. And they're counted as part of the church now. It's not whether you're Jewish or Gentile any longer, you're in Christ a beautiful picture of the unity that God intends. And what we see happen in verse 18, we'll look at verse 2 first and see what's happened over the course of this text. Verse 2 says, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him and said, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That's how the whole thing starts. Doesn't look like it's starting very good. Verse 4, Peter began and explained to them. Now skip down to verse 18. When they heard these things, Peter's explanation they fell silent. They had no objection. Reminds us of when he said to the people in Cornelius' house, is there any reason why we shouldn't baptize these people? There's no objection. When he, they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Even the Gentiles have been granted repentance. Do you see that? You have to be granted repentance. See, that's God's grace. You didn't conjure repentance. God granted it. How great is this God that he would give the Gentiles repentance? That he'd give anybody repentance. But even the Gentiles, who had always historically been enemies of God, that in a prior time period had to be eradicated so that God could establish his temple and his presence and his people to bring Messiah from. A people who for thousands of years practiced the most heinous of things, their time had come, God used Israel, as sinful as Israel was, to eradicate them in some cases, to push them away from this piece of land that God was developing for the purpose of bringing Messiah. Now he's saying those Gentiles that come from those lines have been granted repentance by God. This is a celebration of the amazing grace of God that, by the way, all of us have experienced because of. It's an amazing thing that he grants us repentance. That's what we have. Peter explaining this, and they glorify God. Then to Gentiles also God has has granted repentance that leads to life. What does it mean it leads to life? Repentance to be salvific, to be saving, is a turning from our sin in our worship of ourselves and our desires unto God. It's a turning away unto God in Christ. It's a turning to Christ. When you turn to Christ, you are in effect repenting from what you were worshiping before. 
I'm not saying you know all this when God does it. When you come to trust Jesus, you hear the story and God compels you to know you're a sinner and then come to Christ. Repentance is how he, what he grants to have you turn to him. It's grace upon grace upon grace that you see expand the church. And this is why it can't be stopped. This is why it continues to roll and continues to move. F.F. Bruce says, their criticism ceased and their praise began. It's a wonderful story of how the gospel advances through now to the Gentiles and then beyond. A few ways in which we should think of this passage impacting us today. I think on the macro level, as I like to put it, the big picture, clearly the gospel cannot be stopped. Its advance cannot be stopped. God works through his Holy Spirit to overcome all human barriers, and he does this in conjunction with the gospel being declared. When the gospel is declared, there is hope for there to be repentance. Uh, Where it becomes dark is when you're in a place where the gospel can't be preached. But by God's providence, in most instances, he's allowed for the gospel to be, to be preached in many places so that the kingdom can grow and people can come to know him. The advance of the gospel on the whole cannot be stopped as it goes forward. People observing all of this and hearing all of this from Peter had their ways of thinking changed. What God did there changed them. Where God ordains his gospel to be preached, there will be an impact. Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God for salvation. For everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the declaration that Jesus is the Savior of your sin, for your, this, your Savior to save you from your sins, that declaration, that simple declaration, in all its facets that you can plumb the depths of, That simple declaration is the power of God for salvation. And when it's declared, God brings people to himself. And this is the beautiful part of Romans 1.17. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, people who heard it first, but also for the Gentile or the Greek, as it says in Romans 1. A second impact that I would suggest comes from this passage that we should consider, back to my initial pastoral plea to you, um, we have to be very careful, especially in the context of the church, but also how we think of people in general as Christians, that we make no distinctions among people, no matter what divisions the world would put on us. We can't make those distinctions in the household of God. There can't be discrimination on any level between us in the household of God, especially and this does remain a struggle for Christians. And you might say, oh, you, it's overblown in this way or that way. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But let's just ask God to show us our weakness in this area because we've got plenty of it. And it's not just us. Peter, who is kind of a hero in the story, a couple chapters later, he's getting rebuked by Paul because he starts to get sick of the Gentiles. I'm not kidding. He doesn't want to hang with the Gentiles that much. And so Paul has to rebuke him for how he's kind of turning back to his his Jewish security, and succumbing to some of the Jewish pressures. Peter, so he even struggles with the very thing he's preaching here. In fact, a whole church in the first century struggles with this, the church at Galatia. The whole reason that, well, not the whole reason, but a good part of the reason that Paul writes Galatians is to confront a teaching that said you had to be circumcised to become a Christian. Before you trusted in Christ, you had to be circumcised. So the whole book of Galatians is writing to correct people who were teaching that and have people think right about it. So 
if that's the case, that short after, it's not an overshot for me to assume we've got that problem ourselves in some ways. Now, there are various ways this may look. Certainly, racism is the one that's kind of the hot topic, especially in our country, in the history of our country, in the relatively segregated uh, neighborhoods we still kind of have in this country. The church cannot participate in any kind of ism like this. We have to constantly ask God to give us clarity about if we are practicing these kinds of things. Even focusing on race to the point where it obscures the gospel, like that's all you're talking about as a church, that becomes on its own a form of it. So we have to consider that. But what about something like nationalism, where there's this conflation between um, politics and nationalism with Christianity? That's just as damaging. When, when we think that what we are politically aligns with us being Christian, and then we almost make it equal and talk that way, that's, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. Uh, also, when you look at countries in the world over that are struggling with various ways in which there's division, in Africa, there is this strong tribalism that happens. Uh, literal tribes that come to Christ, passionate Christians, knowledgeable Christians. In fact, if you would see some of the tribes in Africa that know Christ, you would, we would be humbled by the depth of their faith. But these same humble tribes actually are at battle with one another, almost literally sometimes, with other tribes who are Christians. There's a tribalism. They struggle with it. It's ingrained in us somehow, in our sinful selves, to find people like us, if you will, and then think differently of others. And Christianity is meant to break down that barrier. Um, in India, they have the problem with the caste system that can sometimes make it difficult. When people come to Christ in one level of society, it's difficult to know how to relate to the other. They struggle with this. Christians recount this kind of issue. Even, I think, in America, beyond some of the obvious ones, there can be a little bit of this kind of social snobbery a bit. It could be the wealthy, not versus the poor necessarily, but the wealthy versus they're not quite as wealthy, because that's really truly what America's really divided mostly among compared to the world. The wealthy and the not as wealthy. Uh, you fill in the blank. I can give you all sorts of sensitive ways in which we draw distinctions. What we're compelled by here is the power of the gospel in how it transcends these barriers, in that the grace of God is offered to everyone. We should not look to anyone as being lesser than us in reception of the grace of God because we didn't deserve it. James Boyce said, what matters is not whether other people fit us. What matters is that they have been accepted by God through Christ, period. In fact, that leads me to my third and final application or, or exhortation from this passage and what we read. I would compel all of us, brothers and sisters, to be sure that we recognize that our primary identity is in Christ. We are Christians first before you're a husband, before you're a wife, before your, whatever your profession is, before you're this or before you're that, you are a Christian now. You have been saved from hell and given eternal life. That compels you to offer your life as a living sacrifice. You are a Christian first. And that is true of anyone who names the name of Christ. No matter what other distinction the world makes or we're compelled to make, we have to push that aside to see Christian as first. Now, when we are united under Christ and in Christ, it starts to erode those old divisions away. It has to start in the household of God, practicing it with each other, so that we can shine that beyond just these walls. The Jews had no special place with God in particular, except that God had elected Abraham, who, by the way, was a pagan. Abraham was not attractive to, to God when he picked him. So even the Jewish people cannot claim they were something special in God picking them. They were not. In fact, 
God says it was not because you were special. It's because of God's elective purposes to eventually bring the gospel as he has. So nobody can claim this kind of favor on anything of our own. It's all God, according to the good pleasure of his will, reached down and gave us eternal life through Christ. We are Christians first. That's our primary identity. Everything else is second, third, and fourth. I'm not saying they're not important. I'm saying they're not as important. This is the essence of what Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 3. I mentioned that book was written against the backdrop of the Judaizers saying, you must be circumcised to come into the household of God. You must be Jewish. Paul says this, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Put on Christ. That's an identity statement. When people look at you, they see Christ. You've put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God's promise of grace was given through Abraham that all who believe in the Messiah would be the sons and daughters of Abraham, the covenant children. This picture that the Bible paints is a glorious one, and it's one that when we grasp, we will be more empowered and encouraged to bring that message of the gospel to every person on earth as God wills. Derek Thomas said, in Caesarea, the power of the gospel, having broken the resistance of Simon Peter, had broken through the middle wall of partition between the Jew and the Gentile, and from now on, there is no stopping the advance. The question is, will we be part? We cannot stop it. Will we join what God is doing? And that depends largely on how we live out that gospel fruit that should be real in our, in our community and then with those who we are given opportunities to meet. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for your holy word, for its power, for what it displays, what it tells us about you and your character and your work. And Lord, like Peter, we watch all that you've done over the course of church history. And we, we have to just say, who are we to stand in, in your way? We couldn't. Lord, we want to be about your kingdom work. We want to be obedient. You have changed us by your gospel, and we want other people to have opportunity to hear this, this great message, this good news. Pray that you give us eyes that do not see the normal divisions that people would make, the boundaries that come up between individuals for all sorts of reasons, that you give us repentance where we may need it, um, boldness where we may need it, an opportunity, O oh Lord, to express this gospel fruit, this uh, way of looking at the world and desiring to see Jesus exalted. Lord, we claim our identity is in Christ. That is, that is what is most important to us. That's why we're here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.